the Jewish views on the race for the White House. Just what could President Trump or President Clinton II mean for world Jewry? Ashkenazi food with a Sephardi twist. We meet the chef who cooks the best of both tribes. And the American organization set to help British entrepreneurial Jews reach their goals. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A gang of mass youths deliberately threw a lit firework at a group of Orthodox girls in Hackney. One girl, who was visiting London from Canada, had minor burns. The neighbourhood watch group Shomrim captured the attack on video. The police said no arrests had been made, but investigations were continuing. The incident, though, is not apparently being treated as a hate crime. The Barnet-based owner of the Kosher Diamonds business and his girlfriend have been jailed for 11 and 10 years respectively for their part in laundering at least £30 million. Police found £300,000 in the Fitzrovia offices of Danny Court, who's 52, when they swooped on him and 49-year-old Jeanette Rosen in 2014. The judge at the Old Bailey said it was pure greed that led Court into a life of crime, as he had been well off beforehand with a successful, legitimate diamond-dealing business. The former Secretary of State for Communities, Eric Pickles, has condemned an anti-Israel protest that disrupted a University College London event with Jewish students. He said it was simply unacceptable in 2016. Former IDF soldier Hen Mazik was due to speak at the Friends of Israel Society event. The president of the university's Friends of Palestine has been referred to police by the campaign against anti-Semitism, which said the protest resulted in three female students being assaulted. In Haifa, a Russian-born Israeli woman who was just days old when World War II started has been crowned Miss Holocaust Survivor. Anna Grinis, who's now 75, was crowned at the fifth annual pageant for women who survived the war and the Holocaust. There were 14 finalists, but in all, 300 women had applied to participate in the contest. And finally, in California, two 13-year-old girls, one Muslim, one Jewish, decided to embrace each other's cultural backgrounds for Halloween and created the Jewslims. Yasmin Idris and Casey Perlman are best friends, and now they're famous too because a picture of them in yellow tops, striped tights and capes has had 80,000 hits online. And that's the news this week. Andrew has the sport. Thanks, Viv. Egyptian security forces have arrested football supporters who were plotting to attack Israeli coach Avram Grant when he took his Ghana team to Egypt for a World Cup qualifier. The Egyptian FA has though denied they will be increasing security for the match, which takes place on the 13th of November. In tennis, Israel's Davis Cup secured their Group 1 status by defeating Sweden. Amir Weintraub and Dudi Silla won their singles matches before Seller and Jonathan Ehrlich sealed the tie in the doubles. They next travel to Portugal in February, where the winner takes on Ukraine for a place in the World Group playoffs. And finally, Kobe Ifrak has become Mr Universe, winning the under-22 junior division title. The 20-year-old from Zikwan Yakov said, I come from such a small country and became the centre of attention. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport and keep up to date with Sunday's Jewish football at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to review it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Justin, let's start off with the front page. Now, this week, there appear to be three quite big stories on the front page. That's right. And our main story, however, is looking at a new poll released this week from Bicom and Populous, which actually shows some interesting stats on the position of boycotts within the UK. This is a subject, obviously, that, that gains a lot of noise that people are very vocal about on both sides, but particularly the, the pro-boycott campaign. You, you may have you, you know, you may be under the impression from a lot of headlines that are taking place, instance at universities and so on, and in politics, that the the groundswell for of support for boycotts was huge. In fact, this new poll from Populous shows that 51% of respondents do not boycott Israeli goods, which is a rise of 8% on the same period last year. I think also there's an interesting stat which shows that nearly half of people questioned, I think there were just over 2,000 British adults questioned, said that hating Israel and questioning its right to exist was actually anti-Semitic. So that's also quite a, quite a high number. So could it be then that it's, as we have suspected for a very long time, could be just that the enthusiastic minority who do like to perhaps, shall we say, stir trouble are the ones getting the publicity, as it were, but the general feeling is just couldn't really care one way or another? Well, I mean, I, I, it's an interesting survey. Statistics, damn statistics. You can make of, of, of them what you want surveys, can't you? And we've obviously taken the line that a dramatic rise in opposition to boycotts. However, if you really dig deep into these figures, some of this stuff is actually still quite disconcerting. I mean, 51% of respondents do not boycott Israeli goods. Does that mean 49% of UK society looks at an Israeli good on a supermarket shelf and thinks whether I should buy this or not. I mean, there is some chilling statistics here that I still think need to be confronted. But the general term, the the general tone, and I think the general mood is certainly one that's looking a bit more positive after probably the, the, the worst period in terms of recent relations between Israel and the British public, should we say, which was around 2014 post-Gaza. So definitely this is moving in the right direction, but there are two ways, I think, to look at these figures. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that 49%, as you say, could potentially boycott Israeli goods or look at a good and think that it is from Israel, therefore I won't buy it. Certainly there is obviously the scope to anything up to 49%, but there are an awful lot of people whenever these surveys and polls are carried out that just don't care one way or another and choose not to answer. So let us hope that most people have got that response behind them rather than they would boycott. However, people who are on the front page who might boycott, are uh, is this a group of rugby players or something like this? Yeah, this is uh, the rugby team of Goldsmiths University in London. They've unveiled a brand new kit this week. What does it feature on the sleeve? Yes, a Palestinian flag, of course. Fits in perfectly with uh, a sporting event, I'm sure you, you can appreciate. And this is something that they, in the, on a Facebook post that they put out at the end of last week, I believe, said they're very proud to unveil because it fits in with the student union's boycott position and they're expressing support for that boycott position. Not not great, particularly a few days after the uh, horrific events at UCL. 
I could describe to our, our listeners the, the beautiful bright poppy that our uh, host Phil is wearing for obviously for Armistice Day Memorial. And when I first saw this on their kits, I thought, well, perhaps they're, that's what they're doing is a nice little poppy there. But if you look a little closer, you will see indeed it is a Palestinian flag. And the Goldsmith University rugby team say that they're very excited to display this support for Israel boycotts and for isolating the Jewish state. The Jewish society at Goldsmiths were very keen to point out that the Israel society there have been promoting something called Bridges Not Boycotts, which is all about bringing disparate sides together. This uh, rugby team is clearly intent on doing precisely the opposite and good to Goldsmiths who have said that they are disappointed that the rugby team is doing this. So hopefully they can bring some influence to bear. Well, we'll skim over the other story that is on the front page, which is, of course, the race for the White House, because we're going to go over that in far more detail throughout the rest of this programme. So that's also what features on the front page. If we turn inside the paper, you mentioned, Justin, just now after what happened with UCL. What has happened with UCL? Yeah, there there were obviously some very shocking scenes last Thursday night when the Israel Society there organised for a speaker from Stand With Us, Hen Massig, to speak to students there. What ensued was quite scary for the students involved with uh, people trying to break into the room, coming through windows, some lots of screaming and shouting, uh, including shouts of, of from the river to the sea, which obviously means the end of Israel. And the response to this has been overwhelming from the community. In fact, it hasn't happened for a while that there's been a joint statement by the Board of Deputies, the Jewish Leadership Council, National Union students and the CST all coming together to say that, you know, this kind of incident where Israeli speakers are prevented or there are attempts to prevent Israeli speakers from speaking on campus must stop. The action must be taken. To UCL's credit, there is an investigation underway and they have made clear that if anyone is found to have broken university rules, they will face disciplinary action and we'll have to keep hold them to account and, and, and we, sh- we will at the Jewish News and make sure that that happens. See, the thing is that with any of these debates that happen when they erupt into rows, especially when it's obviously concerning Israel, seems to be all that we ever hear about anyway. But I don't really understand sort of where the concerns come from, because at the end of the day, if it's just within campus, what damage could that do? Well, <laughs> realistically. As we've said in the paper, campus life around the world in America and across the UK for for decades and decades has been a hotbed of political activity from women's rights, the Vietnam War, all sorts of things. And it just seems to be now the one thing that gets people's backs up. The one thing that you see a dramatic conflation with is the Middle East and particularly Israel and the Palestinian issue. Now, I'm not saying that that life for Jewish students on campus now is just never-ending misery and a struggle against hostile elements. But looking back over my time at university you know they're meant to be the greatest days of your life and here they are tainted by this this horrendous sort of nonsense that's generated by this this bigoted attitude that people have towards Jewish people as an extension of their hostility towards towards Israel what happened last Thursday was completely unforgivable many people are saying it should be a turning point and that the universities and uh, the NUS which has been broadly silent on the issue needs to actually engage in far far more it's going on 
every day, every week, where there's divestment votes or Zionism equals racism motions or mock IDF roadblocks put up outside campuses and, and student unions. Something has to be done. Something has to stop because it's the only issue out of a plethora of issues that ever seems to get any traction. And, and, and now you've got students, Jewish students, who are in physical danger. Well... Let us hope that nobody does come to any harm for this. And I would obviously like to clarify when I ask just now about what can really come of it. Do we have a worry that it could start impacting on life outside of the campus? But here's hoping it doesn't. Let's squeeze in a, another story altogether. Balfour, 100 years on, what's being done to commemorate it? Yes, this week marks the 99th anniversary of the issuing of the famous Balfour Declaration when the British government expressed support for the Zionist hopes of, a ho- uh, of setting up a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. And basically a whole series of events have been announced to take place, particularly next November for the 100th anniversary for, for the big centenary. There'll be, for example, a, a lecture, the Balfour Lecture, which will be done by Simon Sharma. That will be open to the public in central London. There'll be a whole series of events taking place on the day itself, the 2nd of November 2017. Those have yet to be unveiled. And what's particularly significant, I think, about this is that the whole community appears to be coming together for this anniversary. We've got a a steering committee, Balfour 100 committee, that comprises 23 different organisations. Every single one of the synagogue groups across the religious spectrum, the Zionist Federation, Board of Deputies, JLC, again coming together. And it's once again an illustration of, uh, you know, we're, we're stronger together and we're stronger working together and speaking from the same hymn sheet. Brilliant. All right. Well, we will look forward to those celebrations as and when they unfold. But unfortunately, that's where we have to leave it for reviewing the paper for this week. But thank you both very much. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. This time next week, the world will learn who's going to be the 45th president of the USA. For months, we've witnessed scandals, accusations and bitter exchanges between the two candidates. As speculation mounts as to what effect whoever wins could have on global jury, I've been speaking to chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee on the Jewish Community Relations Council, Dr. Lenny Crystal. Dr. Lenny has spoken to us throughout this year over various presidential election related stories. But this time I started by asking him to tell us what he's observed over the past months. I think I've actually been struck by quite a few phenomena that I've never come across in the world of politics. In many respects, it's been a sort of pseudo reality TV show for the American public. Obviously, Donald Trump is a reality TV star. And uh, from his point of view, he knows very well how to manipulate the media and masterfully at times. And the kinds of things that he says and does certainly in me evoke the idea and the feeling that he's on a reality TV show. It didn't really seem real. But doesn't every single member of parliament, every single Senate, every single, you know, every single politician... I thought that it was part and parcel nowadays that they have to know how to play the media. So what you say about Donald Trump, obviously, yes, it's true. His background is reality TV. Obviously, we're referring to the American series of The Apprentice. But don't you think that it's fair to say that nearly all politicians now know how to work the media? I wouldn't generalise. And in fact, I think 
if we look at the two candidates for president in a few days' time, clearly the one candidate, Hillary, is not as good at playing the media as perhaps she could or should be. That's not casting aspersions. It's not saying that I would vote or wouldn't vote for one or the other candidate. But I think clearly there's a, a demarcation between the two candidates where you've got somebody like Trump who's in front of the TV cameras constantly, who got, they estimate, a couple of billion dollars worth of free advertising time simply because he knew how to play the media and basically knows exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it. And that uh, has worked to his terrible disadvantage in many respects. In what way? Well, I think he's, he's come out with things thinking that he's playing to a TV audience when, in fact, he's playing for matters of almost life and death in American politics. And I don't think for the longest time, until very, very recently, he's been able to concentrate on the real issues in great depth or detail and in a way thought he could get away with slogans, which he would then, you know, you're fired, or I'm, you know, that sort of thing as far as he's concerned. But so that's one of the elements that uh, I've been, you know, struck by. The other is really how it's been a race to the gutter. I don't think I can recall any electoral campaign where certain candidates, and I won't mention them, but they've belittled others, and they've made a, a whole business of how they can knock somebody out in the most dastardly way in order to actually scramble up and get to the top. And I'm not familiar with that. Uh, we do know that politics is a dirty game. But in many ways, it's actually now, it's given something to the American public. It's, a, it's, it's setting the bar very low in terms of expectations. And have we seen America change as a result of that, because essentially now what they're looking for are the sensationalist moments and, you know, who can hurt somebody you know, more than the other. And what does it do to the ethics and the morality and the standards of political debate in the country? Does it feel like there's a lack of validity to this whole presidential campaign? Because both sides have been marred with such controversy and such stark stories that have come out of this. Now, whether that be Donald Trump with his comments about women, whether that be Hillary Clinton and obviously the scandal with emails, which now, of course, the FBI have launched another investigation into, whether it even be their partners as well. I mean, obviously, we don't need to be reminded what President Clinton, President Bill Clinton, I should say, has obviously been through in the past. And then on this particular campaign trail, of course, Donald Trump's wife was involved in a small amount of scandal where she has been accused of copying virtually word for word Michelle Obama's speech. So it just feels as if all round it's just completely marred with everything other than what matters, and that is their manifestos and what they could do for America and the wider world. You're absolutely right, and I think America recognises that. I think what's happened is that you're voting for a candidate who you don't want to see as president. Think, think about that for a moment. Ordinarily, you want to see a candidate that you like and you approve and you appreciate and you want them to be president because they're going to speak to your philosophy, what you need, the pound in the pocket and so on. Here, it's very definitely, I mean, the, as you well know, the uh, unfavorables for both candidates are stunning. Never been that high before. So I'm going to vote for A or B because I don't want to see the other candidate in office. How's that actually going to play out over the next four years? It's, it's insane. 
It is, and it's also very disturbing as well, because if you look at the wider world and you consider Israel, certainly Israel's future has always been very, very dependent, not solely, but very dependent on the situation in America. Mm -hmm. And of course, whoever does get in, it could have a massive impact on Israel and, needless to say, the wider world. So... I think this is probably one of the reasons why the whole world has sat up and really paid very close attention mm -hmm. to what feels like not very much. Yes, it's true. As far as Israel goes, I think that to a large degree, in terms of Hillary Clinton, they know who they're dealing with, although obviously there's a lot that we thought we knew and WikiLeaks has come out and actually disproved that. As far as Donald Trump goes, I don't think he came into this whole you know, presidential campaign, even believing for a single second that he was going to get beyond, you know, the first few months of this campaign. And he started out his campaign typically as a businessman saying, well, I'm going to be even handed and we'll do the greatest deal in the Middle East there's ever been done. But the Israelis tend to look at security first. If you look at their, their entire track record and, uh, since the inception of the state, Prime Ministers who give them comfort about security in an area, obviously, that's very volatile. They tend to place a lot of credence on that. And I just saw in today's news that the Israeli, uh, sorry, the Americans living in Israel have now voted in their vote in votes. And apparently Trump has beaten Hillary Clinton 49% to 44%. And about 40,000 odd, not odd necessarily odd people, but 40,000 odd have voted. And that's substantially down from the 80-something thousand that voted in the 2012 election out in Israel, Americans living there. That in itself is a testimony to the disenchantment of the two candidates involved. But the Israelis probably see Donald Trump being the stronger candidate for Israel in terms of security. And I think that tipped the balance in his favor out there today. When it comes to the way that Americans have perceived this whole presidential campaign would you say that what they have been witnessing and feeling has been the same as the wider world because let's take over here in the uk for an example all i ever hear people talking about when i speak to various people jewish or not jewish of course when it comes to the american presidential campaign is that they they can't tell me one thing that either candidate can offer mm -hmm. with the exception of one thing and that's donald trump's wall between america mm -hmm. and mexico which obviously we have no idea if that will come to fruition even mm -hmm. if he does get elected mm -hmm. is it fair to say that it's not been your average presidential campaign <laughs> that's a beautiful way of describing it you're not your average presidential campaign you know one has to look at america and one has to say what are we talking about You've got the East Coast, you've got the West Coast, and then you've got the country in between. And the country in between is a very different country to the different coasts. And I don't think many Americans are fully aware of the way that the world perceives them, or frankly even care. Most of them can't even name the state next door to them. That's not being disparaging to fellow Americans. But To be fair, those states are quite large. So they, are, they are quite large. So... Are they, are they concerned about how the world sees it? Not really. I think what happens in, in the American um, media is pretty determinative. And the media tend to shape the way that people think. I think this is true perhaps, you know, all over. They have an, 
outlandish, in my opinion, influence on public perceptions. And of course, if they are not overtly stating that they're backing one candidate, they actually do in the way that they frame the questions in terms of the debates that they have, in terms of the pundits that they employ and so on and so forth. A lot of people are disconcerted by the fact that the media they see as being corrupt as as influencing the way that the outcome of the elections actually should materialize. And there's been a lot of evidence, you know, now recently looking at WikiLeaks and the FBI and so on to actually demonstrate that that's probably true. There's a lot of collusion between the D Department of Justice, the, the, the media, the television networks, trying to favor a particular candidate. So people see what they see on television. They don't read very much generally. And they want change. And let's see if that actually happens now. Chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee on the Jewish Community Relations Council, Dr. Lenny Crystal, talking to me there and sharing his final thoughts before we know who will become the 45th president of the USA. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honickberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing, the race for the White House. Plus, I'll be speaking to Michal Tavorsky and Jenny Belotsarkovsky about the JFE Network. But first, I think it's fair comment to say that food is a massive part of Jewish life. But it's amazing how that food can vary depending on what tribal heritage you have. Well, Chef Fabian Venere Luzato has taken the traditional dishes from her Ashkenazi husband's family and infused it with her own Sephardi traditions. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton went along to Fabian's kitchen at her home in London to go and find out more about her style of cooking. Kate started by asking Fabian to tell us how it all began for her. I've been living in London for 15 years. It would be 15 years in December. It would be my 15th wedding anniversary. We met with my Ashkenazi husband in Israel. 16 years ago, I was living in Paris, he was living in London, and then a full romance began, and a lot of Eurostar trips, and I finally, we finally got married and I moved here. I was working in HR, worked in HR here, I was a bit miserable, didn't like what I was doing, got pregnant with my second child, and a friend of mine, British friend of mine, told me, you are miserable in what you're doing. I want you to cater a dinner party for me and I'm paying you. I started like that. Someone from the dinner party called me to organize another dinner party. And it's how it started about 11 years ago. I started to cook in my little cottage in Hampstead Garden suburb with a very, very small kitchen. And I started uh, like that. So, so you've always um, been cooking if people, somebody must have known to ask you in the first place. The, yeah. So I prepared some little menus with starters, main course, desserts, and always adding a bit of Sephardi. What style? What was your thing? I'm obviously French and my parents were born in Tunisia. My father's parents were born in Livorno in Italy. I'm the youngest of family of seven children. So always in the kitchen. The kitchen has always been the center of our apartment in Paris. And uh, my mother taught us how to cook, my uh, four sisters and I. 
the boys were didn't really know where the kitchen had, was, but uh, yeah. So sorry. have you had any formal training? No, the formal training was in my mother's tummy. <laughs> started there, and the, no, the training was in in my home. Uh, by the age of twelve, my mother was preparing couscous and tagine and uh, challah, and I was making all the desserts. Would you say that's the difference between? I've never understood really between the difference between a cook and a chef. Listen, a chef, if you have a look at the definition of a chef, a chef is a chef of his own kitchen. So, oh, like a chief? Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> like a chief, a so chef. It doesn't mean particularly... But uh, yeah, I always said that I'm not a real chef. Or maybe I am a maybe real chef. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I haven't got any proper training. I would have loved to, but I don't know. And as well as time. your cooking, you also are an author, I believe. I'm an author, yeah. Actually, my, my, the catering aspect of my business evolved a lot after like five years, maybe, when someone from the JCC London, current JW3, came to one of my lessons that I was giving for children. And they asked me to teach a lesson for them, then a lesson for adults. And then it's how it started. It's about six, seven years ago, I started to work with them. And then the Jewish Chronicle asked me to write recipes for them. And I decided with a friend to co-write a book for children about healthy eating. And it's a story cookbook called Steamer, the Cooking Wizards. And uh, it's lovely, lovely short stories telling children how to eat better. Steamer comes, in, in, their, age. Yeah, exactly. comes in their dreams and teach them how to eat better and, and you mentioned better. you you give lessons where do you give them how, i give how does it work i give lessons in my home we're in your home in this beautiful kitchen thank you <laughs> and there's a big space and i can see a big table so presumably you you must have a lot of people around yeah we do entertain a lot as a, as, a, as a family but i i teach a lot from home what age group what do you teach many different things i play a lot of course with my origins tunisian Mediterranean, French, but I, I teach children as well. So I, during half term, I've got about 20 children coming here and normally in this other room, learning how to make uh, anything, like proper fish and chips where they, they cut the potatoes, they dip the fish in the, the eggs and the panko and we fry them and uh, I teach baking. I teach a lot. I had um, last summer very very popular course on salads where always add like a little sephardi twist that people love and it's um, a very sociable activity cooking you know you think it's sort of solitary but it can be working alongside people. actually that's why i always always give priority to teaching and not catering because i don't like being alone in my kitchen but you're also a caterer but i do cater yeah yeah i do cater dinner parties and give a bit of help to uh, a Jewish mother who's a bit lost in her kitchen or who hasn't got all the time she wants to prepare, prepare What's meals. your favourite thing to cook? <gasps> oh, so difficult. Are you a sweetie person or a savoury person? <gasps> I love baking. I do love baking, but I, I really, really love doing all my mother's recipes. But I, I cheat. I change them a lot. Because, but you own uh, them then. Once you've taken them and you've twisted them, you own them. 
Definitely. I always say that to my students, actually, when they ask me, can you replace this with this? And can I said, I show you how I do it, but you, you own the recipe. You do exactly what Lovely. you want after. So. And you're doing some event at JW3. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Yes, so you're, I think you're partially interested in one event that is coming up on the 17th of November in the evening. And it's called Ashkenazi Recipes Revisited by a Sephardi Girl. So the Sephardi Girl is me. And uh, I'm taking very classic recipes, chopped liver, chicken soup. Which are all traditional Ashkenazi dishes, yes, aren't they? Yes, definitely. They're all Eastern European and... And how do you twist a chopped liver, for example? I mean, <laughs> it's just liver that's chopped been liver. chopped. Twist so, it for me. Listen, needs for me the chopped liver. I love chopped liver. But it needs a bit of a kick. It needs a mm-hmm. bit of a. Never thought of it. Really needing a kick. How, how do we? How do we give a it a bit boot? of a of a change? So I put some sumac in you it. You heard it first on on the Jewish views. Sumac I, in your chopped liver. <laughs> so it gives like a little like tangy, tangy lemony twist to it and I also serve it with parsley but a lot of parsley chopped in very 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 finely with a lot of lemon olive oil and a little bit of harissa and please try please try or please come to the lesson or please okay (laughs) so come by are there still places available there are they told me there were 12 places booked and How many uh, fit in the I, be- I believe it's a demonstration. It is a demonstration and not a hands-on. If it was a hands-on, I think the course will be full. But I think there are a few, still a few, like maybe six or eight places available still. I can't remember the the maximum maximum capacity of uh, for all the, the all the Ashkenazim out there who want to who want to twist and jive around the the, the recipes. They go online, they get them from the JW3 website? No, they come to come to JW3 and they see me. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm always willing, if some, someone can't come to the lesson and they ask me for the recipes. Chef Fabien Venere Luzato talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about her interesting style of cooking that infuses the best of both Ashkenazi and Sephardi traditions. For more information, then you can go to Fabian's website, which is Home Cooking by Fabian, which is F-A-B-I-E-N-N-E, homecookingbyfabian.co.uk. Or if you'd like more information about her forthcoming class at JW3, then you can always go to the JW3 website, jw3.org.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder, we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but that means you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read some of those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which... If you'd like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, it's often the case that when it comes to the workplace, Jews can be very ambitious and entrepreneurial. Well, an organization founded in America called the JFE Network, or Jews for Entrepreneurship, has just launched in the UK. It's the joint brainchild of Michal Tavrosky 
and Jenny Belotzerkovsky, who started the network seven years ago in San Francisco. Its aim is to bring young Jewish professionals together, and to find out more about it, I've been speaking to both Michal and Jenny. I started by asking them to tell us exactly what the JFE network is all about. So JFE was launched in 2009 with the mission to help Jewish professionals to get connected into the tech community. When we launched in 2009, this was during the Great Recession, it really hit the U.S. hard. A lot of people were losing their jobs, especially in stable big corporations or in the financial markets. And people did not have any place to go to or talk to in terms of um, career prospects. And tech was becoming a little bit more mainstream here in San Francisco Bay Area. It was still a niche market, but it was still a very closed off community. So our we realized that the Jewish community really needed a force, an entity that would help young professionals to transition into it or to help them realize their potential and launch startups or at least learn from people who have done it before. Why specifically the Jewish community? Because surely there's going to be that if a recession hits a country, then it's going to affect all communities. I want to add because at the time when we were starting in San Francisco, there was absolutely nothing in the Jewish community that was geared towards business networking. And of course, you're in San Francisco, so tech and startups is a very prevalent industry. And uh, it was something that we were involved in. We're very connected there already. So it seemed like a very natural thing to focus on. But also at the same time, it was really about being that resource for young Jewish professionals in general, really somewhere where they can go to and then they can find resources within the community. There's, you know, someone's new to the city and moving or just, you know, thinking of career change or someone who is starting a new business and doesn't know kind of where to go from there, knowing that they can reach out to somebody and get advice, get help with funding and, and really taking, you know, their startups or their careers to the next level. Okay, so basically, it's exactly the same kind of way that we have community organizations over here. You just have that initial security of knowing that you've got Judaism in common, whether that be religiously or culturally. And that just helps you that one step further, get on with your ultimate goal. What kind of ultimate goals are we talking about here? What kind of achievements do the people who come to the JFE network hope to achieve? Could it be at any level? Could they maybe already have their business already started? They just don't know what to do with it now? Yes, and it could be a number of different things. They're looking for new customers or they're interested to connect with the community to see you know, what's out there. Maybe there are people that are a little bit more mature and they're interested to help younger generations. So it's, it's, it's really connecting professionals. And how did yeah. you two connect? How did you two meet? We met through, um, through my family, actually, through both of our families. A long time ago, yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, you don't don't appear to be divulging how long ago this was, so I won't won't prod. I won't prod. (laughs) Nine or ten years ago, I was like a recent college grad (laughs) figuring out what I was going to do with my career. Well, I don't believe that Uh, was that long ago. So anyway, I I will move on and say that why did you feel a need to bring your network over to the UK? What did you see that was missing and how did you see it was missing? Because have either of you spent a lot of time in the UK, in particular the business world in the UK? Michal has spent quite a bit of time in the UK. It just made a lot of sense because the United Kingdom has a really thriving tech ecosystem now, especially in fintech. 
There's also a really nice Jewish community in the UK, but I think this was missing. This was definitely missing, and I also believe that UK could really use a support from the Jewish angle, and especially in technology and innovation. The interesting thing about us is that we've been at the very front and center of technology innovation. So there's a lot of knowledge which we have attained working with over 120 companies throughout this time. Plus, we worked with the leading venture capitalists, leading founders, entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs. And there's a lot of knowledge which we are capable of transmitting over as we get away from Silicon Valley to the rest of the world. And I think this would be also a fantastic um, resource for the UK community to understand how things are kind of done in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, because a lot of information gets lost. And being in, in this community for so long here, we really understand how fundraising works, how growing growth of a product, sales works. And I actually wanted to add that our work at JFE did not just, you know, include networking events or like having people random connect, like randomly connecting with each other. We've done pitch events for early stage companies. We've done pitch events for Israeli companies raising Series A with a partnership with Israel Economic Mission. We've done accelerator programs for two and three months. We've done career fairs in San Francisco. You know, we've also done events in Los Angeles and Boston. So the depth of our work has been very, very deep and very detailed. So we've worked with companies on a very, very close level. Like we bring really top knowledge, information, resources, and we definitely want to share that with the UK community. Founders of the JFE Network, or Jews for Entrepreneurship, Mikhail Tavrovsky and Jenny Belotsakovsky, talking to me there about launching the UK division of their organisation. For more information, then you can always go to their website, which is jfenetwork.com, jfenetwork.com. Now, just to share a little insight with you as to the way that the Jewish Views works from time to time, we do like to incorporate modern technology because obviously not all of our guests can join us in the studio. But that was a first for us, that interview, because Jenny was at her home in San Francisco and Michal was in Israel at the time of that. And what with me in London, it was a total time span of 10 hours. So there we have it, a rather unique way in which the world of the Jewish Views works. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. The subject today is the one on everyone's lips, Jewish or not, the US presidential election 2016. We know that we are only a matter of days away finding out who the 45th president of America will be, but let's offer a British Jewish perspective on what we've seen over this campaign. Now, Jenny, let's start with you. Whoever wins the race to the White House, how important do you think the role of the US president is for Jews around the world? Well, of course, the role of the US president, whoever that turns out to be, is of paramount importance to, I would say, pretty much everybody on this planet. The president of America 
is effectively the leader of the free world and decisions taken by that person have an enormous impact on everybody ar around the world, no matter whether they're a voter or a passionately interested observer, like I think everybody in the, in the Jewish community here is. And I think that everybody will be watching with the, the greatest of trepidation and anticipation to see what happens in the election this week. Tony, what's your view? For Jews around the world, I, I think it's very important. What amazes me about the American election is you've got all these millions of Americans and we've got these two candidates, neither of which I believe are suitable for presidential office. They've all got a history of something behind them. Hillary Clinton is, well, there's lots of things showing up about her. I don't think she's a great supporter of Israel. Donald Trump... Although uh, she has, excuse me for interrupting, but she does have a Jewish son-in-law. So does Donald Trump. Yes, His he son-in-law well. is also Jewish. Yeah. I'm not sure he's actually a great supporter. Maybe he is more of a supporter. Interesting they both publicly support Israel. Whether they actually do, well, I guess we'll, find, we'll out find out in, in a ma matter of time. They've both been publicly said that they're supporters of Israel. I think Israel, it's a strange one for Israel as much as it is for us as Anglo-Jews, in the sense that you've got Donald Trump, who he's an unknown quantity. I would imagine most Israelis probably side towards Hillary purely because of historically... They know what they're getting to yes, a degree. Uh, with also, her and with I, her I think I'm yeah. right in saying when her husband was president, he was very pro-Israel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which obviously... Which will have, have a bearing on it. As for Trump, uh, also, again, Jewish son-in-law, who I believe is one of his advisors, as Adam said, leans a little bit towards Israel. Uh, oh, he's or in his come public out and said he, he loves Israel. He's, he's come out and said yeah. he loves Putin. But, yeah. Yeah, where do we go with that one? I think, as Jenny said, it's the not only the Jewish world, it's the wider world that has to look at this as the, as the President of the United States is the leader of the free world. Mm. It's very if, difficult. Is it, maybe this is an unfair question, but I'd like to ask all of you, if you were an American elector, what would you be thinking at this moment? I'd be wondering who to vote for and, and having not having made a decision. The only thing about... Hillary Clinton is she does come from like you say from a, a long line and her husband was president she comes from that family and it is a known family with Trump is unknown I'm not sure I believe he actually believes everything he says and I think he's just going for the populace and the populace being presumably people that don't normally go out and vote and he's saying what the underlying American public are thinking with a wall uh, across Mexico to keep the Mexicans out with the things where he talks about the Muslims and, and, and all other sorts it, of people. In fairness, Tony, George W. Bush was from a well-known family. And taking that logic, he should have been a great president. I'm, I'm not, I'm not I'm saying gonna, Hillary... I'll let our make, listeners make their own minds up whether he yeah, was or I'm not. I'm not saying Hillary will make a great president, but she comes from a known background, whereas Trump does, doesn't come from a known she background. She also, I world. think I'm right in saying, she made quite a good name for herself as a Secretary of State, didn't she? she? Did. I'm really rather shocked to hear Tony say that if he were an American citizen, he, he'd still not have made his mind up by this week. Personally, if it were my choice, I think it's a no-brainer. And I, I do find it quite distressing that in 2016, people appear to be ready to go to the ends of the earth to do anything rather than elect a woman. 
I think that some of the prejudice and some of the antipathy shown against Hillary Clinton, who is whatever we like to say about her attitude to Israel, that's not the most important thing about her. She was an incredibly effective Secretary of State. She understands the way the American government works. And she is, to all intents and purposes, a career politician. I find it really disturbing that people do not want to vote for a woman. She was very heavily involved in the Iran nuclear deal as Secretary of State. And from a Jewish perspective, that's not particularly positive for our, our purposes. That has possibly um, alienated her. It, it bit, possibly think, has, maybe. because it does make you wonder where her alliances lie. Well, I mean, I don't know. I have well, an American cousin. Oh, well, I have a number of American cousins, but most of my American cousins, I've discussed this matter with them, have all said that they think that she's one of the best and pro, most pro-Jewish politicians in America. They see it close and on, they're all voting for her, whether they're Democratic or Republic. These cousins, I mean, it only adds up to about a dozen. But, I mean, there's, there's a dozen safe votes for her there. When I, can I go back? When I said I didn't know which way, I, I, if I was going to vote and I was in America, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I personally wouldn't vote for Trump, but I wouldn't know whether I would want to vote for Hillary Clinton because of all the things That's that are going on. a lot of people and, have. And would I vote yeah. or not vote is the question. The situation has got to the point where the people who say that, that they are still undecided may very well lose Hillary Clinton the election. Yeah. Because having decided not to vote, it may mean that Trump edges ahead. Mm. Yeah. I have a feeling that you're right, because the, it's a bit like the Brexit vote, where lots of people were saying we don't know which way to vote. And everybody thought that the Remainers were going to win. It didn't happen. And I just have a strange feeling the same that thing. it would happen the same way. Yeah. Hillary has had a steady lead throughout, according to the polls. But it's now down to 1%. 1%, yes. It is. She still has the lead. The, the problem is that the, the average American yeah. probably doesn't mm. take part in the polls. So, you know, the lower... lower yeah, polls are always there. very difficult to I, read. Anyway. I would say exact anyway, that 1% lead is one poll. Yeah. It's not right across the board. No. Well, exactly. Yeah. Although throughout the campaign, she's generally been leading most she's of been the leading polls. most of the way yeah yeah, yeah. But I, I was watching a television channel four news the other evening and it was the very interesting they were in i think in texas but i could be wrong about where they were oh no it was new orleans i think and it was extraordinary how so many different people appeared to be trump voters really from both parties mm. do you know what i'm finding Quite worrying is possibly the word. And it, we have this phenomenon in, in Britain as well, where the entire campaign, the global coverage of it is all about Trump versus Clinton. Surely it's Republican versus Democrat. Democrat. And as well, we heard earlier be. in the show from Lenny Crystal, he said how he feels it, it's like a reality show, that we're actually kind of vote them in, vote them out. You know, who do we want? It's becoming a bit farcical, in my opinion. I'm getting a little bit sick of this whole, it's all about personalities. They are essentially figureheads. But the problem is, it's the personality of the two the people top. that people can't mm. see beyond. And they're not voting, from what I can see, due, based on policy. So that's happened in, Actually, that happens what, in England what, what as well. Exactly. So what you're does. saying is very interesting, because I was talking to an American the other day who said to me, you know, we all thought there was going to be a revolutionary change when Obama became the first black president 
in the United States. He said, but in actual fact, the American president has much less power than the British prime minister because mm-hmm. you're run by which whoever's in the Senate and whoever... And Congress is so yes, much and Congress. more powerful. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which is why Obama couldn't actually push through a lot of what he wanted to exactly. during his terms. But you are looking at a Republican Party, which, much like the Labour Party here, is sitting with its head in its collective hands, wondering what on earth it's done to have this person as its nominee. And that is a huge problem for the party. So that's not going to go away, even if Trump were to be elected. In fact, it would be worse. Are there quite serious divides in in the Republican Party then? Very much right. so. And in fact, there, there's a, a big campaign behind a, a write-in candidate who's standing as an independent Republican. I don't think he's got much chance, but I think that a lot of the grandees of the Republican Party were really taken aback by Trump's roller coaster throughout the, the primaries. They didn't expect him to get it. And they were, I think, slightly smug thinking, oh, well, it's never going to happen, it's never going to happen, mm. much like the Labour Party here with, with Corbyn. Corbyn. Yeah. And I think the press, actually, in America didn't quite realise what they were getting themselves into, the way they were building him up and all the stories were about... You know, the free publicity that Trump's had through this campaign is... I mean, it goes into the millions. Well, it, it, was, really all, it was all shock tactics. But but I, I don't Trump says this and let's shock the public. You yeah. know, with the I don't think there's ever yeah. been an election in the United States or indeed an election in the United Kingdom where members of a party have, during the election, come out against their own party candidate. And a great number of Republicans have said, we're not voting yes. for him. And, and likewise, there are Democrats that don't support Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. As you were saying earlier, because she's a woman. And also because of the email thing. I think Democrats are probably more likely to put forward a woman without too many problems. I, I think it's more... I don't think having a woman is a problem. I think you know, that's OK. It happens around the world. We've now got a second woman prime minister. Right but, it's, but it's right, isn't it? But people don't think like that. People think, like you said... Which people? A woman. Which people? A woman. Are you talking about the British or the Americans no, or the French? Are. I think... I, I think I think just uh, in a lot of instances, there's a lot of male chauvinism, not from me, but there is a lot of male chauvinism who wouldn't want a woman as head yeah. of state. And I think it's very interesting at the moment. If Hillary does get in, we'll have Hillary Clinton, Theresa May and Angela Merkel. <laughs> the most powerful Lovely. nations of the Western mm-hmm. world. And they're all run by women. I, I think that we are, what is it, the great Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times? <laughs> yes. I think we're... Well, that's so pretty we, mildly, We are yes. certainly living in them. We're certainly sure. in the middle of that. Now, just let, let's make forecasts from our own point of view. Who do we think will probably win? I think it's between Hillary and Trump. Oh, that's, that's a cheat. <laughs> that's a good forecast. Jenny. I think Hillary will just nick it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Jenny on this. I think she will just scrape through, but it will be very small. I'd like to think that Donald Trump gets t- taken out of the running for his past. Hillary gets taken out for her emails. And and someone like Bernie game. Sanders comes in and <laughs> takes it all over. I think that's a good point at which to end this discussion. Thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. The world, or at least the Jewish world, is returning to normal, at least in the sense that this has been a full week without Hagim. 
One evening last week, I was watching television and was taken aback to see people wearing poppies. Somehow I was so immersed in Tishri that I had not fully appreciated it. It was then almost and now is November. We continue to live in uncertain times politically, both here and on a wider scale. There is much to worry about. And as we resume our cycle of Torah readings, we can try to find help, sometimes not in the sense of exact answers, but at least in the knowledge that others have faced difficulties in their personal lives and on a wider scale. There is for so many a sense of excitement when we read Bereshit first on Simchat Torah and then on the Shabbat following it. However, we understand seven days. We marvel at God's creation and at the same time we are aware of problems, Adam and Eve in the garden, Cain and Abel, the wonderful world, and then the concluding verses. God saw how great was humanity's wickedness on earth and regretted making humanity. God said, I will blot out from the earth those whom I created, for I regret that I made them. But Noah found favour with God. And then this Shabbat with Parashat Noah, and I cannot talk about it without mentioning my father, Zichron Olivracha, whose bar mitzvah sedra it was. Noah ish sadik tamim hayah bedorotav et ha Elohim hitaleh Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his age. Noah walked with God. Yet the rabbinic sources were ambiguous. We've all grown up with the story of the ark, those who were saved, those who were destroyed and then God's covenant and the sign of the rainbow to show that there would never again be a flood to destroy humanity. But it is far more than a story for children. The point of the Torah cycle which we go through each year is that it is not something we grow out of, but ideally something we grow into, striving always to gain more insight. At first hearing, Noah is very good. However, we are told he is good in his generation, with the implication that if he were living at a time when there were more good people, perhaps he would not have stood out. And while he walked with God, Abraham, we shall soon be told, walked before God. Such a short time after Yom Kippur, and we're all too aware of our own failings. The failings of the world always seem to be there. So many things about which many of us worry about on a global scale, and we're aware that we can only help, if at all, in the tiniest of baby steps. God has promised not to destroy the world, but too often we fail to look after both the natural world and its inhabitants in the best way possible. This requires the work of each one of us. As a rabbi, I clearly want everyone to commit themselves to greater learning during this year, and indeed every year. But at the same time, I do not want the learning to be an end in itself. Noah was good enough, even though he only walked with God. Abraham still had his faults, but walked before God. We need to commit ourselves to walking with God and ideally before God, as we actively work to develop ourselves as Jews, but also to make a real contribution to the Jewish world and beyond, as we try to repair at least a little of that which is broken. Thank you to Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Mazorti Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Lenny Crystal, Fabian Viner-Luzato, Michel Tavrovsky, Jenny Belot-Serkovsky, 
And thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg and Jenny Fraser. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous episodes by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.